So what Centrelink has provided is a special disability trust. And principally, the benefits are that the parents can gift up to $500,000 into the trust, a special disability trust, and the child who receives the $500,000 into the special disability trust is not assessed as that amount being an asset and not deemed to produce income. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to episode 252 of Tax Talks. This is Heido Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. What is a special disability trust? What can or can't it do? And why would you set one up? These are some of the questions John Saunders of the Pitwater Partnership in Sydney will cover in this episode. Many families are faced with the difficulty of providing for a child with a disability. And as they grow older, they become more concerned how they can adequately provide for this child with a disability. Some of the problems that uh, a family might have is that the parents can't gift money above the normal gifting limits for Centrelink. So if the parents are, are, typically, are maybe on an age pension, and typically the child with a disability will have a disability support pension. These are subject to the Centrelink gifting rules, and they're basically $10,000 in any one financial year for a couple or a single combined, it's $10,000 and 30,000 over a five-year period. So that's quite restrictive in providing assets for a child to provide for themselves in the future. These gifting routes of $10,000 per year and $30,000 over five years, do they just affect the possible age pension of the parents or would it also affect the disability support pension of the child? So would it um, affect both parent and child's entitlements or would it only affect the parent's entitlement? When we're talking about the normal gifting rules, anything over $10,000 in a financial year is treated as a deprived asset for the donor. So if the donor's on an age pension, then the amount above that $10,000 limit is treated as if it remains in the donor's bank account and is asset and income tested for the next five years. Okay, so um, that means any gifting could affect the donor's entitlements, but it wouldn't affect the child's entitlements. Yes, unless, uh, except where it's a large amount of money, the, the child's assets and income assessment would be affected because that presumably that money sits in the child's bank account and becomes an asset and is okay. deemed. Even if the parents are not on an age pension and don't receive Centrelink entitlements, even then the, the income and asset tests that Centrelink applies are an issue because the, the child might then, as a result of this gift, have too high assets to qualify. 
That's correct. So what Centrelink has provided is a special disability trust. And principally, the benefits are that the parents can gift up to $500,000 into the trust, a special disability trust for a beneficiary and um, the principal beneficiary has to have a severe disability. So the parents can gift up to $500,000 without um, the deprivation rules and the child who receives the $500,000 into the special disability trust is not assessed as that amount being an asset and not deemed to produce income. So for the child who's typically on a disability support pension, which has the same asset and income rules as an age pension, they're not um, disadvantaged in any way. The initial gift may grow up to a value of an, an indexed limit. And currently, as of the 1st of July, the limit is $694,000 without being assessed as an asset. Okay, so the Special Disability Trust basically allows for up to $695,000 to be given to the child without affecting the parents nor the child's entitlements. The parents can gift up to $500,000 without deprivation into a Special Disability Trust and the child, that money may grow in the trust and the current limit that can be held in the trust without being assessed as an asset is 694000 So if the amount goes over $694,000 this financial year, then the amount that um, is over that limit would be deemed as an asset for the child. So that's a major opportunity in terms of parents actually might improve or improve their asset test by gifting the money and improve their pension. And remember, if you're asset tested, you get a 7.8% benefit as an increase in age pension when you reduce your assets. So currently, say for a couple homeowner, they could get the full age pension if they've got $395,000 worth of assets and um, accessible assets and don't lose the pension until their asset limit is over $869,500. So that can um, provide a significant benefit also to the parents in terms of um, age pension. And that return, 7.8%, is probably better than you can get in the market investing the money anyway. Jan, very quickly, uh, back to this threshold of 694000 currently. If the Special Disability Trust's assets fair value exceeds this 694000 it's only the access that then goes into the asset test for the child, and it only goes into the test for the child. It has no repercussions on the parents or the donors. That's correct. When Centrelink gives you a benefit often there's it's very restrictive in how you can use it and they've made uh, uh, special disability trusts have been around for quite a long time but more recently they've made them more flexible but they have 
um, restrictions on what you can use the money for. And there's three major groups of benefits that can be funded from a special disability trust. The trust can expend money on allowable care and needs costs. So things like, well, specifically the need has to arise as a result of the disability of the principal beneficiary. They can be medical or dental related, health insurance, ambulance cover, medicine, surgery, specialist GPs, etc. Case management, daily fees, and typically a child with a disability may be in what we know as group homes or um, supported accommodation. Any itemised fees from um, the provider are payable and any GP approved therapy, you know, including natural therapies can be funded. Should these limitations also already be listed in the trust deed or can you just use a normal trust deed? I assume that these special disability trusts, they are just normal discretionary trusts, correct? They are with limitations on what you can use the money for. Yes, and those um, limitations, sh should they already be in, mentioned in the trust deed or is it enough? Yes, to just, okay. um, I can provide a, a model trust deed that will meet those needs. And um, the restrictions are, if you like, allowable care and needs costs, allowable accommodation costs, and there's a provision for discretionary spending. So with, um, say, allowable accommodation costs, they might result from providing accommodation. I'll just pull up a list of those. Accommodation, it could include paying for a property or part of a property to accommodate the child. But uh, in all these allowable costs, the family members, immediate family members can't benefit unless the benefit's um, incidental and can't charge the trust for costs of services they provide. The discretionary spending allows for, uh, you know, uh, enhance the health, well-being, recreation, independence and social inclusion of the child. The three classes are, you know, accommodation, care, and this discretionary provision, which makes it a little bit more flexible. Does the, the Special Disability Trust affect eligibility for NDIS? No, it doesn't at all. Remember, NDIS is not asset or income tested. It's um, just on a uh, needs basis. On a needs basis, yes. Okay. The taxation of the Special Disability Trust, the beneficiary is liable for tax at normal marginal tax rates on the income and distributions from the trust. So um, the trustee isn't liable for paying tax. Well, the trustee has to make sure a tax return's done. Okay, so talking about the administrative side now of the Special Disability Trust, I assume a normal accountant can set up a Special Disability Trust as long as they adjust the trustee to include the limits and restrictions you listed before, correct? Yes, that's correct. And there is, um, you know, model trustees available. Firstly, an administrative point of view, first of all, the person has to have a certain level of disability, you know, a severe disability. And the forms that are used to apply for a disability trust, the medical side, would be needed to be completed if the person or um, isn't already a disability um, pensioner. 
the you know to have a special disability trust and have those gifting uh, provisions the disabled person needs to be registered as a disabled person either by already having a disability pension or through or showing that medically via using the similar forms that are used to apply for a disability support pension and yes. normally they would be on a disability support pension when we look at these situations. And then with a special disability trust, just like with a normal trust, you have a settler who just donates a, a small amount of money. Would you usually have a corporate trustee or an, you would usually have a corporate trustee for the trust, correct? Often it's um, family members, but okay. yes, a corporate trustee could be used, but often it's family members. So the parents are the individual trustees of the trust? Yeah, but often they course... are, or could, could be other family members, yes. Okay. Yeah, because if it's the parents, then, of course, you run into the problem that the trust is meant to cover the demise of both parents. And then, hence, of course, you also lose your individual trustees. But it could be a sibling of the disabled person, for example. Yes. The other thing that's incorporated in the trust is um, residual beneficiaries. So if the principal beneficiary dies, then the funds can be distributed to the residual uh, beneficiaries who are often, you know, as you'd expect, family members. And that is just a distribution of capital and hence would be tax-free, would just be a return of... Of capital, yes, because the estate capital. of the principal beneficiary, I presume, would do a tax return, you know, for the current year and then funds yes. would be distributed. The yes. other aspect to keep in mind is... Because this could be seen as a device to reduce the assets of, say, parents who are on an age pension, it's expected by Centrelink that this disability trust would, you know, last for a reasonable length of time, say five years. So it could, Centrelink could come back and say it's a deprived asset if it was thought that um, it was, uh, you know, the Uh, the principal beneficiary might have been expected to die in a short period of time. But I'm surprised that you say five years, because if you're talking parent and child, I, I would think that the average length of a special disability trust would be a lot longer than five years, could be 20 or 30 years, because the, the trust will usually only end with the... Um, Death of the child. Disabled person yeah. is deceased. Yeah. Yes, that's I correct. Imagine it would usually run for 20 or 30 years. Unfortunately, Centrelink have to allow for the fact that um, when you set up a set of rules, you know, say for a special disability trust and there's benefits there, that people could manipulate that in some way yes. to get a... I see. So the five years is a minimum. Yes. I think they're a little bit flexible there because, you know, predicting death is... Difficult. It's not so easy to do. This is, in some ways, the provisions for a granny flat right at Centrelink also have a similar time length in which they expect the arrangement to persist for. I might just raise often people on NDIS with a, you know, a disability eventually go or require residential aged care, not specifically age-related, but due to the level of disability and that not being able to be provided in the home or in a group home and people enter residential aged care. NDIS will still pay for the, in. I might just go backwards and say, in residential aged care, there's a basic daily care fee that everyone pays. 
there's a means-tested care fee, which is a Centrelink assessment of how much you can contribute. And there's also a RAD, which is a lump sum payment, or used to be called an accommodation bond. And if you don't pay that accommodation bond, there's an interest-type payment called a DAP. So remember I said before, you want to make sure that NDIS is paying for everything that you're, uh, that's eligible to be paid through that system. So they will pay means-tested fees and they'll pay the interest payment on an unpaid refundable accommodation deposit, a RAD. So one of the important things is to make sure that the NDIS is paying for everything that's possible for the NDIS pay, to pay and the trust only pays for things that the NDIS don't pay. So when you have your assessment meeting with NDIS to assess your needs, don't yeah. mention your special disability trust. I haven't had experience. I think that assessment, see, remember the NDIS assessment is not financial at all. It hasn't got a financial test. So it's not their business what yeah. um, the person's current assets and income yeah, So that are. question is not even asked. Yeah, I'll just go through what things can be paid out of a trust because it is a lot more flexible, but you have to, um, there are reviews of the trust to see what um, is being paid out of it and that they're allowable payments. So there's allowable care needs and costs and that they have to be related to the need arising from the person who has a disability. They can be medical, dental related. They can be daily um, care fees in a residential or supported um, residence and also needs to be in Australia, of course. So that covers things like uh, professional care and case management, therapies, specialised food, mobility aids, sleeping and sensory aids, personal care aids, uh, pressure care aids, continent aids, communication devices, modified vehicle, modifications to a vehicle, transport, and also training for the person with a disability, you know, to develop uh, independent living skills. So that's the allowable care needs costs, allowable accommodation needs to pay for a property or pay for a property. These are the limitations and restrictions. Yes. It's a, didn't we already go through those? Yes, I did. But um, I thought there's um, the interest might be in the types of things that are allowable under that. Okay. Under allowable accommodation needs. This may be of more in interest and in, um, the need to pay for property or rent, but it can't be to an immediate family member. And uh, it can cover things like rates and taxes on the property, or if the person with a disability, their property is rented out, they can receive the rent, the need to pay for maintenance and upkeep on a property that the person with a disability lives in. The beneficiary, of course, they won't have many funds outside of the disability trust to pay the taxes. Hence, they would need to use part of the income they receive from the trust to pay the tax on the income. That is quite true. And generally, uh, when we're, there's three pots of money, if you like. There's the NDIS, they pay for some things. Special Disability Trust can pay for care, accommodation, and there's a discretionary pot there within the NDIS. But also remember, under the asset limits for a 
Disability Support Pensioner, a single homeowner can have up to $247,000 in their own name without affecting their disability support pension. Or if they're a homeowner or a non-homeowner, that limits the same, $247,000. So when you're planning, you would also try and probably not go out to the maximum of $247,000 worth of assets in their name because currently the deeming rates are very, very low historically, but they can have quite a large amount of money in their own name directly without affecting their pension. So that's super discretionary. Uh, They can spend that money on anything they like. And then you have the Disability Support Trust and NDIS. So fitting within... um, what they allow. And that's what um, we look at in planning a benefit, um, you know, the child's finances and um, how we hold the money. So making, so the child can have a reasonable amount of money in their own name. So there are basically five pots. The first pot is NDIS. The second pot yep. is Special Disability Trust. The third pot is Disability Support Pension. The fourth is wages. For example, the child might be earning a, a wage. And then the fifth one is just investments they hold in their own na- name outside of the Disability Trust. So yes, SMSF that's a good... or, or their own investments or you know share. They might have a share portfolio yeah. or something. That's a really good summary, and they're the elements that need to be taken into account. And just keep in mind, personal earnings for a pensioner uh, or a disability support pensioner, they can, above the normal income limits, they can earn an additional $300 per fortnight without affecting their pension. So if they earn income, income up to $300, dollars a fortnight is not assessed from their salary and just keep in mind that the pension the asset and income limits progressively reduce their pension so going over those limits may not be important if that work provides other things you know include including social outlet and you're still under the income test 50 cents better off for every dollar you earn, even when you go over the limits. John, can you give me a rough idea of how severely disabled you need to be to qualify for the Special Disability Trust? Generally speaking, for the um, there is a, a formal medical assessment process, but to qualify for a disability support pension, you're basically saying that um, the person is unable to uh, hold down or you know, earn an income from their own activities and they may do some part-time work, but generally you've got a sickness benefit for someone who's temporarily unwell and uh, this disability support pension is more for people where there's, uh, they're unlikely to be able to provide for themselves either physically or mentally or by you know, their own employment. The And just keep in mind, the trust is audited or the, uh, reviewed by um, Centrelink. But that just means you sent the financial statements in, correct? Yeah, actually, I haven't been through that process yet, but I think they can, uh, you have to keep records of what the money's spent on and how it's spent 
you need to have receipts for expenditure, just like yes. a normal business. That's right. The special disability trust is basically treated like any other trust when it comes to capital gains tax, when it comes to stamp duty or income tax, it's taxed like any other trust, correct? Yes, that's correct. So the only thing you really have to look out for is A, does the beneficiary qualify as a severely disabled person? And then B, does the trustee list the limitations and restrictions sufficiently that direct what the money can be spent, what the income can be spent on? To qualify as to qualify. A, um, for those gifting concessions. And as I said, there's... Um, a model trustee available. Yes. Actually, John, just a quick question. Let's say we have a special disability trust and the trust holds a share portfolio that receives dividends of, unfranked dividends of $100,000, just so that we don't have to worry yeah. about the franking credits. So $100,000 income, the beneficiary needs care of $100,000. So the uh, the care would be paid out of the trust. So the net income of the trust would be zero and no tax would have to be paid, correct? Or do I have to distribute the 100,000, pay tax on the 100,000 and then Yes. And then the care is paid out of the after-tax income. Yes, because remember, a lot of those care, need, care accommodation and discretionary spending isn't tax deductible to the trust so, yes, the income is earned as normal income from a trust and taxed. And okay. it is quite possible that some years you wouldn't spend all that money or be able to spend all that money. And some years you be, may, may be drawing from capital depending on how the funds are invested. Good. So there is no concession when it comes to income tax. So the only concession that really comes through this special disability trust is just that the trust doesn't go into the asset and asset income. Tax yeah, and the income asset tax. and the income test. So the hundred thousand dollars the trust pays out so that the beneficiary can pay the carer, that hundred thousand dollar doesn't go into the Centrelink income test. Correct. Okay, and that's the concession. The, the two concessions are that the trust assets don't go into the asset test, into the Centrelink asset test, and that the income distributed from the trust doesn't go into the Centrelink income test. Yeah, that's probably the main, the Centrelink yes. income test, correct? Yes, that's right. They're the main benefits. If, of course, you, you're not receiving a pension you're the donor, then you could probably gift not 500000 but um, up to the asset limit of the trust. 694000 Yes, and that would, um, for the beneficiary, they would still be within the allowable limits. But the 694000 limit for the beneficiary is at fair value. So not at cost, but at fair value. So if the parents donate 694000 into the trust and then the following year it's more, then the capital gain would go into the asset test of the yes, child. Yes, that's right, once you exceed that limit. And there may be assets in the trust that um, are more difficult to value and may allow some leeway there. Things like property, for instance, it's actually not that complicated. It's actually, you know, in, in the end, it's just a normal, it's just a normal trust. And the only thing is that it has some restrictions on what, what you can pay out of it. Yeah, yes. what you can pay out of it. So it basically means that at the end, you can, when you say, okay, the trust made $100,000 
income, you can't just pay the $100,000 out like in a normal trust. No. You then have to say, okay, what do you need? You need to yes. pay the carer. You need to pay this and that. Okay, that adds up to 55000 So you're receiving 55000 even though you pay tax on the 100000 Yes, that's right. And generally, a person with a disability, they may have some minor employment at the most. And given the marginal tax rates, they could, um, you know, it's unlikely that they'd pay a huge amount of tax unless there was a, a lot of capital gain within the trust. Yeah, huge amount is a question of definition, John. If the trust makes a $100,000 income, that's already, a, that's already a healthy tax bill for a, a person without income, you know, without, yes, without yes, employment. Yes, And that would require a lot of capital gain. If you said the trust had, five, you know, let's say 500000 in, oh, if yeah, you earned right. income at, say, you know, 4%, on yes, average. you're right. You wouldn't get to 100,000. No, um, it'd be nice to. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, so it's probably more likely that the income within the disability trust is more around 30,000, 40,000. And yes, I agree on that. The, in- the yeah. tax is not as high. And the other thing, the medical expense tax offset that was still available for people in residential age care and people basically with disabilities, I think, that finished, you know, in 2018, I think. You know, there was a a transitional period, you know, uh, the general population lost it fairly quickly, but people in residential aged care and I think with disabilities, that finally, it might have been 2019, um, you know, from 30th of June 2019, that finished. And that finished because it was just too hard to administer and too hard to get substantiation from the people involved? You know, why? Well, no, no, it wasn't. I don't think that's the issue because remember, if you're in residential age care, all your care costs, yeah, you know, are, which could be, are well tracked. And, you know, you get a statement from your health fund and Medicare from what you're potentially. But see, for a lot of those people, they weren't paying tax. So that uh, medical expense tax offset, you know, for people in this situation was um, not that useful for them. The other thing is, as a broad rule, people, uh, when you're talking about typically, you know, the child with a disability and the parents, people who've got children with disabilities generally don't have a lot of money because it's cost them a lot. And often there's a high level of marriage breakdown so, um, very sad fact. Yes. Welcome back. So, in a family where neither the parents nor the child pass Centrelink assets and income tests, a special disability trust might mean that all three, so both parents and the child, that all three do pass Centrelink's income and asset tests and hence qualify for the age pension and disability support pensions. After the interview, I asked John about NDIS again. The trust only pays for things that the NDIS aren't paying for. So often in this case, we would sit down and look at all the costs that the, the NDIS is paying and then make sure that the Disability Trust is paying the things only that NDIS don't currently fund. 
And then I asked John about reasonable accommodation costs and I asked him to give me some more examples. It might include modifications to the principal beneficiary's place of residence, payment of costs to purchase the residence, rental payment of rental for the rent of the um, principal beneficiary's place of residence. And here there's a provision if it's not made to a immediate family member. Payment of accommodation bonds um, where the beneficiary is renting and any itemised fees that relate to accommodation of a principal beneficiary residing in residential care services. In general, there's a prohibition of um, payments to immediate family members, you know, that, you know, costs the family member might incur. The other thing to keep in mind is that especially a person with a disability under age 65 might be receiving NDIS. So therefore, it's important when you look at what the trust funds, the special disability trust funds, and what the person with the disability is eligible for under NDIS, the trust can also pay for maintenance of trust property where there's a reasonable need, things like leaking roofs, um, uh, plumbing, faulty parts, servicing of heating and air conditioning units, painting of the interior once every 8 to 10 years, painting the exterior once every 10 to 12 years, adjustment of um, doors, steam cleaning and uh, cleaning of gutters, those sort of things would be, would be deemed to be reasonable expenditure. Welcome back. In the next episode, episode 253, Paul McEnross of Cleary Hall in Brisbane will talk about what happens to pre-CGT company assets when the original shareholder dies. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.